Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is one of Deep State Radio's Briefs and debriefs. Hello, and welcome to another edition of National Security Magazine, Deep State Radio's series of one-on-one conversations with uh, newsmakers and thought leaders from across the United States on big issues of national security and foreign policy. Uh, We've got with us one of our founding friends here, David Sanger of the New York Times, uh, who was going to actually join us on our podcast, but he was trapped uh, in jury duty uh, because... He's a man of the people. He does. He he serves his community. Um, why did they reject you from the jury, David? You know, I think that they were probably Deep State Radio listeners, is my guess. And if anybody's ever listened to Deep State Radio, I mean, would you want any of those people on your jury? Now, I hope that works, by the way. I, um, I hope that the word gets out that the last thing you want on your jury is a deep state radio person. Um, you had a story in the paper um, uh, dated December 9th that uh, had the head, a Cold War arms treaty is unraveling, but the problem is much bigger. We've talked a little bit about the INF uh, on past uh, episodes of Deep State Radio, but I thought the points you made about what this really means in terms of China, in terms of the other countries that are moving into this space, and potentially in terms of other nuclear agreements over the next couple of years, could make this a period of as great um, sort of change in our collective stance in terms of arms control as has happened in, in decades. Uh, I think that's right, David. And and we that's why uh, my colleague Bill Broad and I tried to write it with that in mind. Look, if you, if you go up to 30,000 feet, what's happened is from the Reagan administration forward, we have had a shrinking nuclear arsenal in the United States and China. I'm sorry. We've had a shrinking nuclear arsenal in the United States and Russia and a stable to slightly growing one in China. And then, of course, new programs in or growing programs in India, Pakistan, North Korea, obviously, an attempt uh, in Iran uh, with no nuclear weapons but plenty of missiles, Um, and other countries that are building um, intermediate-range missiles, including Taiwan, doesn't have nuclear weapons. So what has happened here is that we've now hit the inflection point where with the collapse of the INF Treaty, and that looks like what's happening, we could actually see an increase in the number of deployed nuclear weapons in coming years after, uh, you know, an Obama presidency in which President Obama talked, although didn't walk the walk quite as well as many would have liked, to reduce the importance of nuclear weapons to our national defense. Now, why that's happening is a combination of reasons, some of which have nothing to do with Donald Trump and some of which do. Um, I actually think that President Trump has accurately, and his aides have accurately diagnosed the problem here, that 
um, it doesn't make much sense to stay in a treaty in which we're pretty well observing it and the Russians are pretty clearly violating it. And the treaty was only between us and them. Uh, the, the problem is that the president has shown no interest in expanding the treaty to the other nations, and we count about 10 total, that are building missiles that violate the terms of this treaty. They are, none of them are signatories, so they're not under any obligation to. And China's made it pretty clear they don't plan to go sign a treaty like this, and you wouldn't either, because 95% of their arsenal is made up of missiles that would fall within this, this category. But, you know, it's one of the reasons that um, we, we had a conversation with Jake Sullivan last week um, on this same national security one-on-one format broadcast. And Jake's, Jake's was, I mean, deeply disturbed at what was going on here with INF. But you make the point in the article that there are other treaties that could fall soon. That's right. And, you know, it was, you know, we've long suspected that if you can't get this thing sorted out, it should be a relatively simple issue because we're talking about one missile that the uh, Russians are making, then the chances that you're going to go renew the New START Treaty, which was um, signed in 2010 or ratified in 2010, and is the one that brought the United States and Russia down to 1,550 um, uh, missiles apiece. Um, oh, these are the big intercontinental ballistic missiles. I think the chances are relatively high. That's going to be very hard to renew. And just as we were getting ready to close up the piece, um, who comes along but Joe Dunford, the um, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who says in a public event that the Washington Post ran, you know, I really don't understand how without INF we're ever going to get the new START treaty uh, renewed. And if we don't, on the week after, I'm sorry, the month after Donald Trump uh, either leaves office or begins his new term, uh, you are going to have no restraints on Russia or the United States and the number of intercontinental ballistic missiles. If that treaty uh, falls apart and just doesn't get extended, that's it. Everybody's off to the old arms race. So no... ICBM limitations, no intermediate weapons limitations at that okay. point. You're, and you're back in you're back in in pre Reagan era kind of. Actually, even you're back further than that. You're back in pre Nixon period. Right, and it's all complicated by the fact that, of course, other things like what you've been writing about so often uh, in cyber, there are no restrictions on that. No, um, we're not even close. We haven't even, we haven't figured out what restrictions would look like on cyber. At least in nuclear, it's a relatively limited number of countries that have possession of them, and there's not as easy for uh, terror groups or um, criminal groups or teenagers to go build as cyber weapons are. Um, so you have hope for arms control in nuclear. If we can't do this, though, we're basically walking the clack clock back by three or four decades it's kind of astonishing it's you know i mean do you do you think there's a chance that i mean trump talks periodically about we're going to get a great arms control agreement but has there been anything that you have seen in covering these stories that suggests that that's actually the case any positive movement i've seen no movement at all uh as the obama administration did they 
the Trump administration went to the Russians and complained about this missile violation. And, of course, the Russians come back and say, we're not violating it, but you are. Uh, and they have an argument to make about some launchers the U.S. has put in, in Europe that could launch missiles of um, of this range. We don't believe the U.S. has deployed any missiles of this range. And stupidly, the Obama administration and the Trump administration has not invited the Russians in to go inspect those sites so that you could make it clear that that wasn't happening. That would be the smartest thing to do here. But in any case, what we haven't seen is any new diplomatic initiatives here. And, you know, this is not an administration that's sort of given to being interested in um, new deals of any kind that put restrictions on American arms. And John Bolton has long been a critic of many of these kind of arms control deals. What's interesting about the INF is the one to fall here is that even conservatives, even people who don't usually like arms control, have all said this was the model treaty. It brought both sides down to zero. For many years, there was mutual inspection that expired, which was a mistake, but it did expire on, on both sides. Um, but even people who don't like arms control would say the INF was probably the best arms control treaty we ever signed. Uh, but uh, here we are. And I don't particularly blame President Trump for leaving the treaty if we're the only ones abiding by it. But you would then want to say, look, we need a bigger initiative here to solve this problem on a more global scale. And, you know, David, if you're worried constantly about everything that's said about you and Russia, it's kind of hard to sit down and have a conversation with uh, the president of Russia on these issues without everybody in the U.S. looking around trying to see whether or not the president is giving away the store or has there's some other influence on him. So this may be a case where the Russia agreement is actually impinging on our ability to um, to seriously have an important arms control agreement. If you're looking for a, a policy outflow of the paralysis in Washington over Russia. This is as good a one as you'll ever find. Well, it raises another question, which is that whatever paralysis we may have had in Washington over the course of the past two years, it's going to grow. It's going to grow because there's a divided House uh, and Senate, a divided Congress starting in, on January 3rd. It's going to grow because the pressure on the president from Mueller, from the Southern District of New York, from other prosecutors, from emoluments cases and so forth is going to grow. It's uh, it's going to be really, really hard to get anything done in Washington. What does that mean for a treaty like this? Well, the treaty would have to, if you renewed a treaty, it would have to go through uh, the Senate. We'd be a long way from that. The big problem here, as I suggested before, is that China wouldn't want to sign up. You'd have to get Pakistan to sign up. Pakistan won't sign anything that India hasn't. Uh, those two have never engaged in real arms control. Um, Taiwan would not do anything if China's numbers didn't come down. So you can see how, how much more complicated this gets when you move from the chess game of the U.S. and Russia, though when this was signed it was the U.S. and Soviet Union, to the three-dimensional or multi-dimensional chess of having... 10 states all with these same weapons. And um, that would require a lot of focus and a lot of diplomatic creativity before you even got to the Senate. And I haven't seen even word one expressed about trying to go down that road. Well, that's a pretty, pretty bleak uh, outlook. You know, you mentioned the Obama administration. 
to what extent do you think they have any responsibility for us getting here? And the real reason I'm asking is what we might expect post-Trump. Let's say Trump's out of office in 2020. Let's say these agreements um, uh, fritter away and disappear, as, as you've described. What might we expect immediately after that? Will we sort of snap back to a more sensible approach? Or are there other factors which have been leading us to where we are right now? There are other factors. So, I mean, I think the Obama administration came to this with their head on straight about what you needed to do. The president said, including in an interview that Peter Baker and I did with him, President Obama in 2009, ahead of his um, first nuclear security summit, I'm sorry, it was probably 2010, um, that he wanted to reduce the centrality of nuclear weapons to our, our foreign policy and our defense policy. He did that. But uh, in order to get the um, New START treaty through the Senate, the price he had to pay for that was to agree to do uh, multi-billion dollar renovations, probably in the range of 60 to $70 billion, on the American nuclear labs. Now, some of that was just much-needed environmental work. A lot of those labs dated back to World War II and were, were a giant risk. But a lot of that was also work on new weapons that President Obama had no intention of actually ever building. Well, guess what? Donald Trump inherits that, and suddenly when you go into the Pentagon budget, there's all this discussion of actually funding new weapons in anticipation of the fact that the INF and perhaps New START uh, may collapse. And so if you go on the budget, there are now actually new weapons in production, which has given Putin a talking point. He said, look at your own Pentagon budget and see what's going on here. And then, of course, he turns around to go try to match it. And nuclear weapons are relatively cheap compared to other kinds of military activity. So this all plays to Putin's favor. And uh, so I don't think that the Obama administration left us in a great place. We thought for a while that they would eliminate at least one leg of the triad. Um, that's, of course, the ground-based missiles, the bombers, and uh, the submarine-based, of which the most vulnerable to cyber attack, to just ordinary attack, is uh, the ground-based system. It was way out of date. But they decided, they, they bought the line from the generals that you needed to go preserve all three. I'm not persuaded of that. I think that the ground-based system is just sitting ducks for somebody to attack in one way or another. D d is there a sort of underlying strategy behind this where the Russians would like to see these treaties go because it's a way for them to maintain their uh, former superpower status, it's sort of the lowest cost way they can do that because everything else is much more expensive. Uh, are there sort of uh, parts of the U.S. military industrial establishment that like uh, the idea of creating a new uh, arms war uh, uh, in in these areas? Uh, you know, I'm just sort of what's what's the sub sure. subtext? So so both of those are true. I mean, there's obviously every weapon system develops a constituency. And as soon as you talk about eliminating one group of them, say the ground-based weapons, where the ground-based weapons are all out in the middle of the country in low population states where they're, where the military facilities around them are significant employers. The manufacturers of the missiles see a lot of money in refurbishing 
old systems that date back to the 1950s. And you'd either pay a lot of money to refurbish it or just seal the, seal those tunnels up uh, or those silos up. Um, so there's a big constituency which which here. we could we could take advantage of that here. In well, the you know, Rosa. Rosa's already scoped out all of those for her collection of silos to live in. Uh, so, uh, and you know, there have been more than a few that have been decommissioned over the years, including up in New England. And we've we sent Rosa to go inspect each and every one of those. Yeah, I sent her some. I sent her some pictures of some in Vermont just this summer. Right now, we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll open our deep deep state acres development sometime soon, where people. Yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking for because the parties you can throw, you know, 300 feet under are great because you start pouring the drinks up at the top edge, just sort of let them flow down, you know. That's, uh, so. that's we'll let you we'll let you be the toastmaster <laughs> of Deep State Acres, uh, and we'll give you a fifty million dollar penthouse in one no. of the silos. Just, just that, that sounds great. The problem is that the silo, the best penthouse is at the bottom. You know, yeah, no, so, uh, right. it's it's the, it's the basement it's the basement house. But no, to your to your uh, point more seriously on the Russians. Look, if you're Putin and you're looking for a cheap way to go restore great power status, the chance to build up your nuclear weapons is a lot cheaper than all your other alternatives and a lot scarier to the Europeans who are sitting here wondering whether Donald Trump uh, is actually going to keep them under the U.S. nuclear umbrella. So if you are looking for a way to break up NATO, which seems to me to be, you know, the long game for Putin, building more nukes, freaking out the Europeans, forcing the United States to make statements about whether they would or wouldn't come to the aid of small NATO countries threatened by Russian nukes. Boy, that sounds to me like playing right to Putin's hand. Uh, well, speaking of that and changing the subject just slightly, um, one of the things we've noticed in the press in the past couple of days is the Russian government coming out saying some pretty nasty things about Donald Trump. Um, and now we have Maria Butina looking like she's going to flip, mainly because she wants to go back to Russia. And I think one of the days that Donald Trump was fearing the most was the day that Russia decided they weren't going to be propping him up anymore, that he was not a of much use to them, or maybe he hasn't thought that far ahead. Um, but it does seem like that's one of the many elements of this ongoing melodrama that's changing right now. I think that's right. Look, I think they are of no, he is of no use to them. If, if they ever thought that supporting him was going to get them what they wanted the most, which was relief from sanctions and perhaps a whole new relationship, that's the one thing Donald Trump can't do now. And, you know, he never actually was able to bring even his most passionate advocates in the Senate, people who would defend him uh, on all of the Russia scandal-related charges. He could never bring them around even considering lifting sanctions on Russia for the, um, the sanctions that the Obama administration put on, rightly, after uh, the annexation of Crimea and the uh, the little green men that were sent in to uh, eastern Ukraine. And the Republicans made it clear they are not backing down one bit on, uh, on those sanctions. So at that moment, what utility is Donald Trump? He can't even meet with Putin. You know, the best they could do is sort of shake hands on the side of a, of a dinner in, uh, at, the, uh, at the meeting in Buenos Aires uh, two weeks ago. So um, 
I think that they have figured that whatever they invested in the campaign, and clearly given the number of contacts between Russians and members of the campaign, they were trying to invest something. I think they've concluded that this one uh, has sort of washed out. Do you think we're at a turning point more broadly? I mean, we had the uh, attorneys for the Southern District of New York essentially arguing that the president had committed two felonies with regard to campaign finance, directing the commission of those felonies. Uh, We have um, uh, a growing amount of evidence that uh, the investigation is turning towards Trump. You obviously have the Democratic House uh, with their sights clearly set on Trump. Uh, and we've got not one or two or three, but we've got about a dozen different storylines in this Russia thing, whether it's, um, you know, WikiLeaks and Roger Stone and Corsi or whether it's the Trump Tower meeting or whether it's earlier meetings with Michael Cohen or whether it's uh, meetings with Jared and others regarding financing or on and on and on and on. There, there, There's just a lot of avenues here. And it seems like it's not just, you know, Mueller or the Southern District of New York, but also the Congress and also the people pursuing the emoluments clause lawsuits and others. The the it just seems like the walls are closing in on the president. Now I don't know how far that closed, but it does look like twenty nineteen is going to be the worst year of his life, regardless. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think Friday had to be, you know, rank up among the worst days, right? Because he had both the Southern District and the Mueller uh, stuff coming together. And if you put together the narrative that we already see from Mueller, you know, the question has been for a year and a half, two years, what what was it that was making Donald Trump so solicitous to the Russians? And while we don't know the answer to that yet, The narrative that Mueller appears to be pushing us to is that the Russians, sensing Donald Trump's weakest point, were um, pushing a combination of offers of political help and offers of business help, and particularly getting that tower built in Moscow. And that if one of them, one avenue didn't work out, if he didn't get elected president, then of of course, you know, it's very possible that the tower would work out and he'd make a lot of money. And who's our best witness on this? It's, of course, Donald Trump, who's standing out in front of the helicopters the other day. He said, well, you know, it wasn't at all clear that I was going to go get elected. So if I wasn't, why would I ever turn down an opportunity so that if I you know, wasn't elected and I went back to my business, I hadn't wasted the opportunity? And I thought it was an incredibly revealing statement, David, because the clear answer to that question is because you are running for president of the United States. And that means that you no longer go seek every one of those opportunities because each one of them is fraught with a potential conflict of interest, particularly if it's with our major superpower adversary. And it's his brain just does not work that way. It goes immediately to what's my best business deal without stopping to say, maybe my best business deal isn't my best political deal. Well, right. And it also speaks to the point of, you know, how did we get to where we are right now? And, you know, it seems quite possible that Donald Trump um, was surrounded by some people who were closer to the Russians, Paul Manafort, some of these others, the Maria Butina types, and some of the folks closer to to to, to WikiLeaks. Um, 
who may have been actively supporting their their goals. Donald Trump may have been just assuming that this was how things worked in the world um, and 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 thinking, you know, if he goes along and they help him get ahead, great. Uh, they're going to also think of him as a bigger deal because he's running and getting ahead like this. It'll increase the likelihood of a, of a, of a big project like this. And then at the end of the day, either he's president or he's getting rich doing business with the Russians. <coughs> now, having said that, that doesn't explain his behavior after he gets elected. You know, it doesn't it doesn't explain Flynn and Kislyak. It doesn't explain as recently as, you know, last week, not really doing anything serious about Ukraine, uh, defending the Russians, being aligned with the Russians on all sorts of things that we weren't aligned with the Russians on before. Um, and I also don't think ignorance is a defense for betraying your country, um, which seems to be one of the arguments they're teeing up to make. Yeah, well, if I was, you know... Um trying to defend the president of the United States at the moment that you say, I'm sorry, he didn't understand any of these issues. It's probably not like the greatest argument you're making for, you know, why it is you would want to press somebody as um, as uh, the rightful person to, to occupy the office. I think you have to separate these in a couple of pieces. So you mentioned early on the Southern District case, which involved Michael Cohen. And clearly in that case, seems fairly clear. He uh, paid off uh, a former uh, porn star and one other person who was threatening to reveal an affair. The affairs were years old and the payoff was happening weeks before the presidential election. Uh, and if you believe Cohn's account of events, the president himself knew about that, which means, of course, that he has not told the truth about that, including the reporters when he walked back past uh, Air Force One, although if lying to reporters on Air Force One was a crime, every president I've covered would be in jail. But, right? uh, so that's that's one case. Maria Butina, which you mentioned, I thought in the filing that happened today, and I haven't had a chance to uh, read all of it, but the filing that was put in uh, on Monday, uh, it looked to me like the government's case against her was getting weaker and weaker and weaker. All the salacious stuff that suggested that, you know, she was... Uh, doing this as a as a uh, sort of giant premeditated plant uh, out there that seemed to be falling away in their case. And my, my guess is that that part of the case sort of fritters away um, and she'll probably just get time served and be deported back to Russia. And that'll be the last you hear of her. Um, then the most interesting part is the part you mentioned, because, you know, in March of 20. 16, and just as he was emerging as a leading candidate, Maggie Haberman and I sat down to to um, meet with uh, meet with then candidate Trump. That was the interview you constantly give me grief for for its um, references to um, uh, make America first and uh, all that kind of stuff and and uh, the. Uh, all of the. I'd say, I'm not giving you grief. This is a you know you hold a place in American history. It yeah, happens yeah, to be yeah. a very dark moment in American moment, history. But there, yeah. there, there you go. But in that same interview, I asked him repeatedly about Ukraine, and he was making the argument that the United States should not get involved in the sanctions uh, against Russia for uh, Crimea 
because we were caring about this more than the European nations and more than anybody else. And why should we care? And he said, I have a lot of friends in Ukraine, but basically said, um, who cares about his friends in Ukraine? That was sort of the, the subtext of it. And uh, what's interesting is that what we now know that we didn't know a few weeks ago is that they were still in negotiations to build the hotel in Moscow at the time he gave that interview. The negotiations did not end until June of that year. So you could read those statements as part of the effort to signal to Putin uh, through our interview, through other interviews he was doing, that he was going to do away with the uh, sanctions which was the one thing that Vladimir Putin wanted more than all other things. Yeah, and, uh, you know, of all the things that he wanted, he seems to have gotten a lot of the things that he wanted. Um, but now with Trump uh, being, you know, under pressure, that all may change, as we were talking about it a little earlier. Yeah, the sanctions are not going to go away. If anything, they're going to get worse. Uh, yeah, and, you know, I think the utility of Trump with a Democratic House of Representatives falls fairly dramatically, right? I mean, they're not they're not going around they're not going to go along with this stuff. That that's absolutely right. But you know what? The Republicans didn't go along with it when the Republicans controlled the House and Senate. So uh, so now it's not even going to get to the floor. But you couldn't you couldn't even mass Senate Republicans to vote for lifting the sanctions. It was initially briefly broached in the days when Mike Flynn, those 24 days when Mike Flynn was still around. And, you know, there was discussion of what do you do with sanctions and so forth and were there votes. But it's become clear ever since all of this broke. No Republican wants to be caught out. It doesn't even seem like a good, tough Republican position to be lifting sanctions on Russia that you impose because they invaded another country. All right, so let me ask you one last question because I know you're at the courthouse or something in downtown DC and I, I, I've want been strong now. I'm, I've been, you know, this this time, you know, this time I'm not on trial and I'm not sitting on someone else's trial. Right, and you, so you want to get out of there, presumably. <laughs> it's not the best building in, in DC. But let me ask you one last question. The, the, the job of chief of staff to the president has been at different times in our history called the second most powerful job in Washington. Or, you know, when Sherman I Adams... Being the host, I thought being the host of Deep State Radio was the second most powerful and, job and, in Washington. Well, but you're an insider and you understand how power really works. But, oh, okay. but, but you know, when Sherman Adams was the, you know, deputy, the chief of staff to, the, to, to Eisenhower, he was, you know, jokingly called the deputy president. And there have been others who've been called the deputy president. It's a great job in Washington because essentially you control who sees the president, what goes on the president's desk, the president's agenda, the how the White House works. You set the rules and you're not Senate confirmed. It's a, you know, it's, it's just one of those extraordinary jobs. If you can't fill that job, you got a problem in your administration. They were going to try to offer the job to a 36-year-old, the chief of staff to the vice president. Um, and he is like, no, I don't know. I don't know that I want it. I got to go back to Georgia. Um, now, he may have had other business stuff in his background he doesn't want explored. But it seems like nobody wants to get too close to Trump because, A, he's 
sort of a bad client. He's not going to, you know, go along with the chief of staff. He's had bad relations with his chief of staff, and things are going to go from bad to worse over the next year. But just you've been watching this world a long time. This is kind of extraordinary. I, I thought it was absolutely stunning on a couple of different levels. So first of all, here you have a highly ambitious, very talented political operative in Mick Ayers, who, uh, as you say, was the vice president's chief of staff. He was the favorite of Ivanka Trump and of Jared Kushner. He was the one they were pushing because they didn't care for um, General Kelly. He was the one they were pushing to get into uh, the job. Uh, it looks like as of Friday or Saturday that that was going to happen. And suddenly he's decided that his family is going back to Georgia, which I think they were planning to. He's got triplets um, in a few months and that he was going with them. Now, I've seen other chiefs of staff sort of commute back and forth on the job, and I don't know what Mr. Ayers' family situation was like, but it's quite a job for a 36-year-old to go um, turn down. Um, so that's number one. It's true, number because two, the last 36-year-old to hold the job was Dick Cheney, and, you know, he went on to great things. That's true. That's true. He was it for Gerald Ford, and um, you weren't in that administration. You were in, like, one of the later ones, yes, I recall. Thank you. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it, he did many remarkable things in that job, but he also signed the document that gave the Iranians their first nuclear reactor, the Tehran Research Reactor, uh, from his time as, as chief of staff. So you can see how powerful it is. Uh, he came to regret that later on. Um, but uh, the fact of the matter is uh, it was an enormously powerful job. But more importantly, it must be a huge blow to the Kushner-Ivanka-Trump side of the White House and to them personally, that for months they have sort of been plotting this along and at the last minute he decides he's not going to go do it. Now, whether he decided not to do it because he concluded that anybody who takes that job in the next year, um, you know, is going to get swept into every legal case that's going along and all of the discussions that the president will certainly have or the thoughts he will have about firing uh the Mueller and um, uh, every other cabinet change. And, you know, we have hit that moment where the president who says that he gets all the finest people has now gotten so many of the finest people and so many of the finest people have left well over 60 percent of the senior political appointees that you've got to wonder whether the, um, the second tier that's coming along um, is really also of the finest caliber. And, you know, we haven't even seen the end of this because we don't know how long Mattis is going to last. Uh, Kirsten Nielsen, the um, Secretary of Homeland Security, was protected in her job by one man, the chief of staff, uh, Chief of Staff Kelly. Uh, he's now gone by the end of the year. You can't believe that she's going to survive it that much longer. Yeah, and then there are other people like Ryan Zinke who will probably get taken away by the police. Um, so, you know, there's, 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 there's a lot of change yet to come in this administration. Hopefully you'll join us in the future on some, uh, episodes of deep state radio. Now that I, you're not I, I teaching plan, your class, I, I, I'm not teaching my class. And you know, once you've gotten out of jury service in DC, you're allegedly out for two years. 
This is good news for the listeners of of Deep State Radio. Um, well, it's very bad news for them. The, the other way to look at it. <laughs> no, no, they 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 love you as they should. Um, uh, all right. Well, thank you very much for this, um, and we uh, hope to have you back uh, very very soon on on Deep State Radio, good. Uh, the podcast. And uh, you know, go uh, take a shower and try to. Uh, uh, recover from your day among the the people. You go. I'm sure you'd be required to take a shower before you go back to the ivory tower of the New York Times. <laughs> you know, we're journalists. You know, we only shower at the end of the week. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, Great. Uh, talk to you very soon, David. Thank you very See you much. Soon, David. Bye bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.